Beloved congregation, this morning we saw in our text, verse 1, a glorious prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be set up as a fountain for all sin and uncleanness. And we saw this morning at the signs of the Lord's Supper that the Lord removes the guilt of his people that it is fulfilled as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed the guilt of his people in order to comfort them. And this morning we saw that this fountain was opened. It was hidden for many centuries, but now it was opened. And we all need this fountain because we have a heart that emanates all kinds of filth. And now, glory be to the Lord God. The Lord is not only cleansed from guilt, but he removes also guilt and sin from the lives of his people, so that they not only are forgiven, but that they start to walk in the ways of the Lord. There's a change of one's life, and that is a blessed, a glorious change when they are delivered from those chains of iniquity and of self-centeredness, they are thankful, grateful. It is a deliverance for them, a deliverance from bondage. And this is what the Lord does. So we may say that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is for justification, to cleanse from sin, to forgive the sins, but it's also for sanctification, that it leads people not to do the things that they used to do. We see an illustration of this in the blood of the Lord Jesus to what happened when he was on the cross. Then the Roman soldier pierced his side, and then water and blood flowed from the Lord Jesus' side. And that was a medical sign that the body of the Lord Jesus had died, that he truly was dead. That's the biological evidence. There was no more life in his body. But this afternoon, you want to look at it from a different perspective. We see blood and water. And in the Bible, blood is a sign of reconciliation. The blood of sacrificial animals had to flow, and that would cause reconciliation between sinners and God to take place. Without blood, there's no remission of sin. But then we see in the Bible also that water is a sign of cleansing, of renewing. In the Old Testament, water... I will sprinkle clean water upon you. That is a sign of renewal and, and re refreshing. And so the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is not only for reconciliation, but it's also for renewal. And so the Lord is going to take away the sins of his people, not just to reconcile them to himself, but also to teach them to walk in a different way, in a different path, that they will walk in obedience to him. And that's actually what Zechariah is aiming at. 
in these first verses of chapter 13, that there will be a strict devotion to the Lord, that a person's life will be changed once he has been washed in this fountain set up for sin and uncleanness. So that is what we consider also after the Lord's Supper, that at the Supper the Lord gives the signs of reconciliation. But this is also a sign of renewal, renewal of one's life. And that's the ultimate consequence of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, that ultimately it will lead his people to be fully without sin here on earth. It's only a beginning. For the most godly of his people have only a small beginning of this perfect obedience. But it is there. Lives are changed. Lives are renewed. Sins are put away with. Sinful conduct is abhorred. There's a change of life. It's beautiful. And that's what we wish to meditate on in this service of post-communion. So we consider the blessing of the fountain Christ. And this is in the first place abundance of blessing. And in the second place, deliverance from evil. <clears throat> so we are focusing here upon the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus. That is not only forgiveness that the Lord gives, but he teaches obedience in one's life. And verse 1 shows us this in the Im imagery of a fountain. We saw something of that this morning already. To be washed in the fountain of Christ's blood implies a great change. Our lives will be cleansed, washed. We will be renewed. We read that more often in Scripture, that the Lord himself becomes a fountain for his people. Psalm 84, the Lord becomes a well or a fountain of water to his people. And Psalm 87 speaks about all my springs or fountains are in thee. And when the Lord is your Savior, then fountains will be opened in your inner parts that the Lord's fountains of new life and refreshing grace will be in you. That's what the Lord Jesus said in John 4, 14. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So this water, this fountain, it washes, but you also can drink it. You drink it in, and it renews you, and the fountain springs up from within you. That's the reality of spiritual life. And we can discern even five fountains which are opened in the lives of God's children when they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Five fountains will be opened up in their lives. First, there will be a fountain of love springing forth from your heart. It was not present in the past, but having been washed, 
in this fountain of Christ, in drinking in this water of life, a fountain of love comes forth in your heart. You've confessed your guilt and corruption. You experience God's love in your heart. He gives you peace in the inner parts. He cleansed you. And therefore, having tasted God's goodness, you want to cleave to this Lord. You want to love Him. You want to be alert to live close to Him. You wish to love Him in return. A child of God should be alert to keep this fountain of love flowing, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit by a sloppy walk and by neglecting a quiet time with the Lord. When you know this cleansing, you will have this desire to stir up love in your heart to the Lord. You desire Him as your Lord and Master. And this is all by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first fountain, a fountain of love. Then there's also another fountain, a fountain of gratitude that the Lord looked down upon you, that you were on your own way heading for the, the cliff and going off the deep end. That's what would have happened if the Lord did not intervene in your life. And now there's gratitude. He cleansed you in His fountain. And now you desire to lay your life down as a living sacrifice to the Lord that is the fountain of gratitude. It's the Holy Spirit who works that surrender to Him and that willingness to be subjected to, to His will. You know the Lord is good, that He gave Himself for you, and therefore out of gratitude, Lord, take my life and let it be devoted to Thee, whatever calling I may have in life. That's the second fountain a fountain of gratitude. And the third fountain, that's a fountain of sorrow. Because when love motivates you, then there will be sorrow. Because sorrow is the flip side of love. When you miss someone you love, there will be sorrow. And when there's love to the Lord for all He has done, then there will be sorrow in your heart when you do not live according to His will. You know that you are not who you should be. And so you desire to have perfect love without sin. It's the love of Christ constraining you. And you know, you know that you can't be as you should be. And so there's this fountain of sorrow in your heart. And then there's also a fourth fountain... That's the fountain of faith that you rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that He washed you. He cleansed you. He is the rock of salvation. And so you daily flee to Him. That's faith. You learn to look away from yourself, even from your feelings, even from your experiences. Like Job said, when I go forward, I see him not. And go backward, I perceive him not. To the right or to the left, he's not there. But yet Job confessed, when I come through this affliction, I will come th through purged, 
purified as gold. You see, that's faith that although you see him not and feel him not, you yet look to him. That's that fountain that the Holy Spirit causes to break open in your life. You start to live not by your feelings, but you start to live by faith. That's that fountain of faith. And then there's a fifth fountain, and that is the fountain of humility of self-denial. By nature, we have high thoughts of ourselves. But when we are washed in this fountain, God's Spirit starts to cleanse you from pride and from conceit for all the blessings and changes in your life. And not because of you, they came to fruition in your life in spite of you. It was His work alone. And so you lay low. You become humble. It's all His mercy. It's all because of that work of God's Spirit in your heart. And so we see these five fountains springing up in the life of a child of God. That if anyone drinks of the water the Lord Jesus gives him, there will be a fountain springing up. We can say five fountains. A fountain of love, a fountain of gratitude, of sorrow, of faith, and of humility. And all this flows forth from Christ, for he was the first in your life, child of God. He crossed your path he opened your eyes. He drew you. He cleansed you. And therefore you owe Him everything. And therefore, after having been at the Lord's Supper, seek to meditate upon Him. Also, in the time to come, desire Him, because He saved your soul. The high priest of the Old Testament carry the twelve, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel upon his chest. And now the Lord Jesus carries your name upon his chest in heaven. Let then the name of the Lord Jesus rest upon your heart. Let your name upon his heart and his name upon your heart that you ask grace to follow him all the days of your life. And the more you think about him, the more love, gratitude, sorrow for sin, faith, and humility will be present in your life. When you have been at the Lord's Supper and now you return to daily life, and when you see as a shock that sin lies at the door and that you so easily defile yourself, flee then as quickly as possible to this fountain. There will be sins. But flee then quickly. Don't remain in those sins when you've been defiled by the polluted waters of this of the foul, wicked fountains of this world and flee to the cleansing fountain of Christ. 
because the blood of Christ has more power to cleanse you than the defiled waters of this world have power to defile you. And you know, the Lord of the Lord's Supper goes along with you in the time to come. He does not change. Let that be be your daily comfort that this fountain is beside you. It's not only when you're at the supper, but it's beside you. He takes care of you. But then the text also speaks, as our second thought, about deliverance from evil. For if we desire to fear the Lord and to walk in His ways, we are to be sincere before the Lord. Filth in our lives must be removed. Everything that is contrary to God's will must be done away with. We must live uprightly before God. And you understand this. Because when a husband and a wife love each other, then they will not only say this to each other, but they will be reflected in their actions. There will be self-denial for one another. That's the heart of love, self-denial. And then there will be a focus upon the well-being of the other in marriage. We do not love our wives when we are harsh against her. When we look at other women, we must be sincere. And those sins must be discarded from us. And Calvin says here in his commentary that in order to serve the Lord God in truth, filth must be removed from our lives. All filth must be removed. On earth that will never be fully possible. But it will be possible later on when his people are in his presence. Calvin writes, As soon as the sun rises, darkness is dispelled. And likewise the word of God will arise and drive out the darkness of sin when God's word functions in our personal life. The deceit of the devil and of sin will be blown away by the power of God's Spirit. If you live close to His Word and close to the Lord, His Spirit will show you sins and filth, and you will be kept from false ways going astray from the Lord. You know, it's a fact that people think that they give God the honor which is due to Him. We go to church, we say our prayers, and we're quite decent citizens, so we're doing quite well. We give God our worship and our honor. We come to to church to worship Him, so we have done our duties. And then the rest of our life, we can just live for ourselves. We are worshiping God, we are honoring Him, But at the same time, these people can be caught up with all kinds of sins. They're following their own reasonings. Calvin even says that it's hardly even one out of a hundred who follow that which is good. 
Therefore, it's not enough to say that we worship the Lord and we have our religious duties and we, and we are believers in the Lord. No, we must be delivered from sin. We are by nature in a maze of error and we have our own self-constructed ways. We live for ourselves. Our lives are focused upon ourselves. And that's filth. Because it's not that we worship God, but that God must take possession of the totality of our lives. It's not that we do some certain religious duties and think that that is worshiping God. No, Worshipping the Lord is in spirit and in truth. And then he becomes, takes in the center place of your life. He lives in your heart. He directs your actions. He guides you. He leads you. And so it's the, it's the task of the preaching not only to point to the Lord Jesus Christ as remission of sins, but also to warn against all kinds of corruption so that people would be delivered and rescued from their sins. This is what the prophet Zechariah says here in verse 2. And it shall come to pass in that day, said the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So the Lord was going to remove the idols and even the names of the idols. Even the names would not even be remembered anymore. And you know the people of Israel, they worship many idols. But here the Lord promises that he would take idolatry away from them. And that's also what happened. Because after the exile, before the exile, you read of much idolatry. But after the exile, idolatry is greatly removed. They became vehemently opposed to images. And that was also the reason why they revolted against the Romans in the year 70 AD, because the Romans wanted to put a statue of the emperor in Jerusalem, and the Jews were totally opposed to idolatry. And even the names of the idols were no longer mentioned. The people had actually forgotten who these idols were and what their names were. But, sad to say, idolatry was still present among Israel. They made an idol of their laws. They committed idolatry with the temple, with their ceremonies. They focused on outward formalities, but they neglected the genuine fear of the Lord. And only after some of the Jews were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they gave up this form of idolatry. And no longer did they commit idolatry with Jewish ceremonies. They saw that their life rests only in Christ. The Jewish lords had no more any significance because now everything was focused upon Christ and upon following Him. Luther says that we are producers of idols. 
And even though we may see no value in imagery, worship, worship of images, still by nature, we are also filled with idolatry. We think of the sin of a worldly lifestyle and of a walk in which we gratify our own flesh. Because there are two great idols also today. That's the world and our own flesh. And that's portrayed by our attitude in life, what we focus upon. How do we dress ourselves? Is it modestly? Or do we want to expose ourselves? Do we want to be seen on purpose? Of course we should dress neatly and take care that we are neat and and correct in our outward appearance. But is it to focus attention upon ourselves? Or as women, do we want to expose ourselves? Is it maybe that we have love for money? That we have focus on money, that we don't have the money, but the money has us? Are we delighted in the entertainment of this world? Are we all enthused about the sports heroes in our society? Or are we enthused about gaining more knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you know the Lord Jesus, he will remove all these idols I just mentioned. And it should be your prayer that these idols are removed. The text also speaks about the unclean spirit, that the Lord will remove the unclean spirits from the land. That means the Lord will remove the ungodly principles of life out of his people. There were among Israel false prophets who made false promises to the people. They spoke of peace and peace and there is no danger. And there are also now false preachers who tell the people that it's all well with them, that there's no danger. False pastors will deceive people. But the Lord says here he will put these false prophets out of the land. And there will be such a zeal among God's people that they will put away these false prophets And the text even speaks here about killing them and assaulting them. The significance of that is in the setting of the Old Testament where they were called to put a false prophet to death lest he would seduce people and lead them to perdition. But this text doesn't mean now that we with violence should root out false prophecy but it displays a certain zeal not to tolerate false prophecy. A zeal for the truth of God's Word, that we would testify of His truth, that we cannot stand errors and and heresy. And the Lord, through His Spirit, will lead His people that they will not be able to stand these temptations of the devil. They don't want to, have, they want to have nothing to do with it. And so there's much for us to learn here. Because by nature, I said, we have idols. We can start looking at ourselves. 
We must be alert for that. Often our self is one big idol. We claim we know things better than God when we do not understand His guidance in our life. It's conceit. Man can be so impressed with himself, he wants to advertise himself. That's today worse than before. We can think of scores of pictures of ourselves that some upload on Facebook or on Instagram. We do that because we want to make an impression upon other people and therefore we display ourselves. That's not the Christian attitude. Of course, it's nice to send vacation pictures or pictures about what's going on to loved ones or on a family app or whatever it is. That's not self-conceit. But there is a sickening desire in our society that people need to promote themselves. It's actually a burden. It's actually a kind of slavery. It's a blessing if you're delivered from that, that you want to be upright and just, and that your concern is, what does the Lord think of you? And that you do that which is right, and what people think of you, that's up to them. That's how we are called to live. We are not so important. Is that not how we were raised? That we had to be polite and modest? That we should not portray ourselves? That's pride. We want to be the best. We want to be the best minister or the best elder or the best deacon. We are proud of our business, of our home, of our health, of our active life, or whatever it is. But that's not the Christian attitude. It's a false spirit. And the Lord will remove that. And so in this service of post-communion, we should examine our lives carefully. How do we live? Is everything focused upon ourselves And is much focus in our lives upon our honor and upon our person. That's a form of idolatry. But when God converts a person, all these things are unmasked as self-conceit. Then we're ashamed of ourselves. And you can see yourself as the worst sinner. And it's such a deliverance that you no longer have to promote yourself, but that you just need to be faithful in the calling the Lord gives you. And what about the love of money? Many people in our society sacrifice their happiness and the happiness of their family for money. And what to think of worldly pleasure. People are ruining their lives because of this. How many young people, but also older people, make an idol of sexuality. And they do wrong things with a gift that God has given a man and a woman to enjoy in their marriage to bind them close together 
It's for in marriage, not before marriage. The world says, why wait? But God says, wait a minute. Because God created that blessing of sexuality. And why did God do that? For procreation, for sure. But also when a young man and a young woman, they love each other. And they proclaim they want to be together. They have their wedding. All their friends and relatives come. They know from from that time on, this young man, John and Jill, they are together. And then they indeed come together. And that seals their marriage. But if you start that sealing before marriage, then you're ruining things. You're spoiling things. And how many have then broken off a relationship with all kinds of psychological and hardening consequences? Don't listen to the world. They make an idol of sexuality. But listen to what the Lord who created this to rejoice in one another in your marriage, in the safety of marriage. When you first committed yourself to each other, yes, yes, I do, I do. And that's public. And within that safety, there you enjoy what God has given to you. But if people make an idol of sexuality, they will have no rest. Their conscience will accuse them. The idols, they take everything away from you. Pornography is an idol. It doesn't give you rest. It's an unclean spirit. It's hovering above our homes, above our computers. And it can be that there are moments that you see something on your screen that you should not see, then immediately turn away from it. Because the longer you look at it, the more it pollutes you. It's an unclean spirit. And what to think about screen time. Screen time. Children on their computers playing games. And it's no longer for half an hour or an hour but it's for hours on end, wasting their time with nonsense. Relaxation is fine. We all need that, I too. And playing some game that can be very useful for relaxation. But all within limits. Don't allow your computer to be an idol. And when the Lord forbids cursing, and stealing, and violence, and hating, and kicking, and fighting each other, and punching each other, and, I, and, and adultery. What do you find on Netflix? What do you find in Hollywood's so-called entertainment? It's modern idolatry. It's an unclean spirit. 
It pollutes you. It may attract your senses. But there are simply times in life that you say, for the love of Christ, because of this fountain set up for sin and uncleanness, because of his love portrayed to me, I simply say no. And that's it. And the many movies are gone. They don't belong in our homes. It's an unclean spirit. And the Lord is going to remove those unclean spirits. When the Lord works in your life through grace, you can't watch those things anymore. You don't want to. Even though they may appeal, may look exciting, you can't do it. Because it defiles you. And then the Lord will also remove false doctrine. Remove false doctrine, false teaching, false prophesying. What does that mean? That means positively you learn to love the truth. Because you're daily immersing yourself in the Word of God. And let it be your practice in, in your life. I trust and I hope. And if you know grace, I expect that every day you will seek time to read a chapter of Scripture and to think about it and to pray. And that every day of the week, every month, every year, all the decades of your life. And there breeds in you a love for the truth. And then false doctrine and heresy are removed. You receive spiritual sensitivity for that which is right and just. You wish to walk in God's truth. You become dependent upon God's Word. You start to love God's Word. And you recognize it more and more as the truth that the whole Word of God is speaking about one thing of reconciliation to God and a renewed life through the Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. That's what the Psalms speak about. That's what Moses spoke about and what the laws prefigured. That's what Solomon speaks about in his his Proverbs. That's what the prophets spoke about. And the whole New Testament, it's all about Christ. You start to love the truth. And you lean upon God's Word. When you have been a guest at the Lord's Supper, then you will love God's Word. And if you don't love God's Word, and if you must say, yeah, often I don't have time for that, I'm so busy. Well, you are too busy. And now you can choose to remain too busy and lose your soul. Because if you're not immersed in God's Word, then the Spirit will not remove bad things from your life. And you may think you will be saved, but it may prove 
to be an imagination of your own heart. Because the one you love, you want to commune with. It's not to say that you have to be hours and getting up very early in the middle of the night. No, no. You're also human. The Lord knows that too. But there will be time in your life. You'll have to schedule that yourself. The love of Christ will constrain you. In this setting, Calvin says that there are many who do not lead crude, ungodly lives, but they are still deceiving themselves. They think they're honoring God. They think they will enter heaven, but they are attached to various forms of idolatry and deceit. But that's not how the Lord works, Calvin says. And the Lord is not working in your heart. When we have become guests at the Lord's Supper, we have our eyes, our eyes will be opened against sin. And then you're willing to deny yourself for the well-being of the other. And you wish that the Lord would work more in your life that you, and that you will deny yourself for Him and for His service. You become strict for yourself and generous towards other people. That's how the love of the Lord works in one's life. And so the Lord delivers from idolatry. How does the Lord do that? How does the Lord remove the evil spirits and then the false doctrine and the sins out of one's life? The Lord does that by personal instruction. That has something to do with our quiet time. We find it differently worded, referring to the same thing, in Hosea 2, verse 14. And the Lord says to apostate Israel, to idolatrous Israel, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. The Lord draws with his love and leads his people into the wilderness, into the desert. And that's the place where they are alone with God. That can be a place of distress. The wilderness is not a nice place to be. There can be certain distress in your life, certain troubles, and that you need the Lord, and the Lord leads you into that, and there's no one to help you. And so you cry out to the living God, and there the Lord has communion with you. He shows you your sins. He shows you His care and His loving kindness. And then they learn to seek his beauty, his goodness. And you learn to rely upon God alone. You see that your self-chosen ways were dead-end streets, that all then all your worldly fountains dry out, and all the idols, they forsake you. They can't help you. And the Lord shows you your emptiness and shows you the wickedness of all you trusted in. And you start to look at the newly discovered fountain of everlasting life that's breaking forth in you. 
then you see that He is good and you long to live with Him and for Him. And then your life will no longer revolve about yourself, but about the Lord. That's how the Lord deals with His people. He will speak comfortably to them. And that's all because of the sufferings of Christ. Because He opened that way that that Holy Spirit of God can now dwell in sinful lives. The Lord Jesus had to pay for the sins of idolatry. His people had committed these sins, and therefore He was beaten. His people had forsaken the truth of God, and therefore the Lord Jesus was forsaken by God. Though, Though His people had defiled themselves, And he was smitten. They were promoting themselves. And therefore Christ was rejected and cast out. He had to be cut off from the land of the living. So that he could give grace of everlasting life to his people. Do not live outside of this Savior. If you long for Him, cast yourself down before Him and look to Him. He will not refuse you. We need a living communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you learn this at the foot of the cross. What Count von Zinzendorf, who was the person who established the Moravian Brothers who sent out many missionaries throughout the world in the 18th century, this Count Sinzendorf once saw apparently a picture, a, a, a painting of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And then it said underneath, this is what I have done for you. What do you do for me? The Lord has done everything. And what do we do? Then you say, teach me, Lord, the way that I should go. Amen. We will sing Psalter 428, the fifth stanza. Mm -hmm.